Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Huge week for privacy, everybody. Huge week. Article in Forbes came out this week talking about Facebook and their fight against encryption. By the way, there are two ways you can join us tonight. You can join us via phone, 855-450-NOAH, as I just said, or... We invite you to join us in our interactive mumble room. Either way, we'll take you. If you are in the mumble room, go ahead and join us in our Freenode chat room at Pound Ask Noah Show on Freenode and ping me in there and we'll we'll go ahead and put you on the air. So Facebook is it's so it's so interesting. For years, Facebook was the poster child for how a company violates your privacy and how a company sells data to to violate your privacy to make money. And since then, numerous other organizations have followed. And in the wake of the Amazon Alexas of the world and other voice assistants who have been caught compromising user privacy, Facebook is all of a sudden taking this stance to defend user privacy, or at least so it appears from a public stance. And obviously this comes hot in the heels after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which hit us last year. So Facebook is under increasing pressure to delay their plans now to expand encryption across their platforms until backdoors can be added to enable uh, government agencies to be able to spy on people's communication. So if you haven't been following this, Facebook purchased WhatsApp and WhatsApp decided to roll out a privacy system or an encryption end-to-end encryption system what does end-to-end encryption mean obviously it means the two endpoints are encrypted to each other but oftentimes i think that we talk about encrypted communications and we are not clear of exactly what we're saying if i were to start a messaging service right here in the ask noah show studio and i set up a server and i put ssl on it and gave you an application to connect to my server i could call that encrypted communication. And in fact, it would be encrypted. I have a key, you have a key, we exchange information, that's fine, right? And the data is encrypted, uh, maybe both at rest and in transit. And I might tell you that as a marketing thing. Hey, we encrypt your data at rest and in transit, and so we are an encrypted messaging service. And let's say I have two users, we'll call them Bob and Sally, and Bob wants to message Sally, and Bob establishes his encrypted communication to my server, which I've set up here at the Asno Studio, sends me a message, and my server then passes that message on to Sally, and of course, I establish an encrypted communication channel with Sally and send it to her. That communication is quote-unquote encrypted, right? Here's the catch. The catch is, in that scenario that I just laid out, my server is what is hosting the private keys. Therefore, my server can read that data, and so I can go into my server, even though it's encrypted, and decrypt that data because I have the key to do so. And so what messaging apps are trying to do is develop end-to-end encryption. That is to say, the key for your communication is only stored on your device and on the receiver's device. And so me in the middle, even though I'm hosting the service, can't read your messages even if I want to. And end-to-end encryption 
and regular encryption are not to be confused. Admittedly, the terminology is a bit dicey because encryption is just a way to secure communications between two endpoints. Where those two endpoints are and how that network is set up and how that messaging system is set up completely varies depending on which messaging service you're using. And so Facebook, after they purchased WhatsApp, um, decided to try to strengthen the encryption system. And so WhatsApp effectively duplicated the system that Signal has been using. And Signal, if you're not familiar, the Signal protocol is widely accepted as the most secure messaging protocol out there. And the reason, in addition to being the most secure messaging platform out there, the reason that it is so popular and the reason that basically every other messaging service is either trying to duplicate it or they're just flat out using their protocol is because the Signal protocol acts, actually makes it very simple and easy for the user to to use. It's it's transparent to the user. So you have end-to-end encryption, but you don't have to do things like generate a public and private key pair and send the public, key, the, the public key to whoever it is you want to talk to and learn how to ingest the private key of the person that you want to talk to. You don't have to do any of that. The application takes care of all of that. The protocol, rather, takes care of all of that. So despite building this massive business around monetizing user data, Facebook, which also, again, they own WhatsApp, they decided that because they have these 1.6 billion users on their messaging service back in 2016, that they were going to demonstrate that end-to-end encryption was possible. And so they did. And they, like I say, they, they, didn't, they didn't use the Signal protocol, but they sort of ripped it off. Well, then they went to implement the same thing inside of Facebook, what they call secret messages. And secret message is basically like, an, like a feature of Facebook Messenger in which you can use end-to-end encryption to talk to other people. Well, guess what? That did actually use and leverage the signal protocol. And so you would think that people would be very happy about it. And indeed, many users praised Facebook for their decision to do so. However, not everybody was happy about it, specifically governments, because governments now lost access to reading this data. In the previous scenario, the one that I just laid out, governments would go to whoever it was was hosting the server and said, hey, you know what? I understand that you have encrypted communication. That's perfectly fine. You're welcome to respect those users' privacy. We're glad. We definitely honor user privacy. By the way, here's a warrant, and um, now we're going to undo all that. Uh, well, we can't. It's, it's encrypted. Yeah, but you have the private key, so here's a warrant. Well, they have a warrant. It's legal. I guess we'll have to give them the communication. Oh, darn. And then they hand it over to law enforcement. And this was, if you remember way back with the iPhone thing, app, there was a scenario in which a suspected quote-unquote terrorist was using a, uh, an iPhone. And the reason I put terrorist in quotes wasn't because the particular case that I'm referencing, that guy absolutely did some bad things. That's not what I'm getting at. My point is we lump everybody in as a terrorist if they're using encrypted communication, and I think that's wrong. But in that scenario, essentially the argument that was being had was Apple has the ability to push firmware down to iPhones. And every iPhone and every iPad and every iDevice trusts any firmware that contains the signature from Apple, the cryptographic signature that proves that it's a valid firmware image that is signed by Apple. The problem with that is the security and the encryption of the device relied heavily on the fact that if you entered an incorrect pin on the phone more than a requisite amount of times, the device would destroy the data on the, it would lock, permanently lock the device. And so you weren't able to get access to it. And Apple claims that that was their secure feature and it, you know, it couldn't be broken, blah, blah, blah. 
Maybe it can, maybe it couldn't. Here's the problem. If we trust firmware signed by Apple and Apple can send a firmware update to the device that basically says, hey, give me unlimited amount of tries to enter this pin. Well, there's only so many digits and we can plug in a device that can just randomly enter, you know, calculate uh, how many different entries we could possibly try until it breaks the device open. And it's just a function of how fast we can enter those pin tries and how long the pin is. But eventually it'll break open. And so Apple refused to do that. Apple refused to push a firmware update. And don't get me wrong, good on them. I'm glad that that's the case. However, it frustrates me that everybody looks at that example and points to that example as a textbook case of, look, this is what companies should do to protect your privacy. No, what really, it, what really should happen is I should be able to say what things come down to my device and what instruction set my device follows. And my device, if I were designing it, I should be able to choose, like on my Selfish OS phone, for example. I get to choose how many tries you can enter before the device locks additional and actually destroys the data. Additionally, there is no forced firmware updating. I get to choose when my device updates. And frankly, I keep my device offline most of the time, so even if there was an automatic update, it wouldn't, wouldn't really do anything. 855-450-NO, that's 855-450-6624. The conversation will continue throughout the hour, but we take your calls front of the line. Jason, Massachusetts, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Jason, do we have you? Oh, I got to click the button. I'm sorry. 855-450-NOAH. Jason, you're on the air. Oh, hello, Noah. Now you can hear me. That's awesome. All right. So I have a Valve Index head-mounted display. It's a VR device, and um, it says it supports Linux. The way audio works is I have a DisplayPort cable plugged in my graphics card. And the audio is supposed to go through the DisplayPort cable. And on Windows, it works fine. Now, I have an AMD graphics card. And if I go to the uh, Valve Software um, Steam VR for Linux page, it notes that there is a certain kernel fix that, ne that you need in order for audio to work for specifically the Valve Index headset. And they provide a PPA that does have a patched kernel. And I have that PPA installed. I have the custom kernel installed. But when I go to GNOME um, settings in the sound section, I get the microphone as an input device. I do not get the headset speakers as an out device, uh, output device. Do you have any clues on what I could do to potentially fix this? So I agree with your troubleshooting method. If I, I would follow that exact same path. Here's where I would go from there, though. Since this is obviously something that is specifically developed by Valve, it is possible that they have some sort of code that speaks directly from Steam um, to this headset. Have you tried looking inside of Steam to see if there are any settings where you can specify an audio device inside of Steam itself rather than the operating system itself? So, yes. If I go into Steam right now, I can go to Tools and I can launch um, Steam VR for Linux, which I actually don't have installed at the moment. Now, whether you're running Steam VR over um, on Windows or on Linux, there is a section that basically says when VR mode is active, set this as the default um, output device. And you would get a list of options like speakers or you know whatever is currently plugged in. And on Windows, what I just do is I have it, oh, actually it is installed, sweet. I just have that set to um, the, it, it says like index HMD. 
Um, and, and also to note, on Windows, it does appear as a normal audio output device. And in, in the past, I did actually get it to appear as an audio output device in GNOME settings. But since then, you know, I've reinstalled Ubuntu. I think I tried switching to KDE Neon. It didn't work there. And then I switched back to stock Ubuntu, and it's still not working. Okay, here's my second thought then. If it did show up in there at one time and it's not showing up there now, then my next thing would be I would try and install Ulsa Mixer because I've had, I'll give you an example. On the Dell XPS 13 line, when you go to, if you plug in headphones, there's this weird little bug where if you're not using their patched version of Ubuntu and you plug in your your headphones, it is supposed to switch automatically to the headphone jack and then you're supposed to hear audio in your headphones. What actually happens is it makes the switch all right and it switches over to the headphones, but there is a separate audio volume control that isn't available inside of the regular control panel, but it is available in the Ulsa mixer. You unmute that and turn it up and then your headphones work. Why it's that way, I have absolutely no earthly idea. But uh, that would be my next step is see if that sound device, see if that headset device shows up inside of Ulsa Mixer and if you can unmute it. It's not, it's re that really doesn't solve your problem. It just gives us an extra step in troubleshooting. Because, and the reason I say it doesn't solve your problem is because you're still going to have to have some way to tell um, Steam or your s d default system settings that, hey, I want to output audio here. The only other thing I can think of, uh, what dust, you're running GNOME right now? Yeah, I'm running stock Ubuntu with GNOME. The, the, the reason I ask is KDE, if that also trick does work, there is a option in KDE that is called simultaneous output. I'm not sure if that option, if there's a way to get that option to work inside of GNOME, but what simultaneous output will do is if you select that as the default audio device, every output audio device that is attached to the system will receive the same audio. And I have had a very similar problem to what you're talking about using certain brands of Thunderbolt docks. You plug in the Thunderbolt dock and it won't see the audio dock that is embedded inside of the Thunderbolt dock. It just sees the one embedded into the computer. However, if I select that simultaneous output, it will send the audio to every sound device, including the one that it can't even see. And I'm able to hear the audio through my Thunderbolt dock. And again, that's more of a hack than a real solution because the problem in lies that my audio is then coming out of both the internal speakers of the laptop and the Thunderbolt dock, and that's not really an ideal solution. And so what I end up having to do is physically mute the speakers themselves, and then the audio just continues to pass through the Thunderbolt dock, and then I can hear them through the speakers I have connected there. But that would be my second uh, step, and if that doesn't work, I'm afraid my only answer is to tell you to jump on the Valve for Actually, you know what I would tell you to do? I would tell you to go to destinationlinux.network and check out our forms there because Das Geek, my friend Ryan, uh, is great at troubleshooting this stuff. And if he has, if he finds himself with an extra 15, 20 minutes, my guess is he would actually spend some time and try and dig into it just because he likes solving it and because he would hate to hear this call in which somebody is having trouble with a red card. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. All right, so I opened up Ulsa Mixer, and mm -hmm. I'm seeing I have a bunch of different numbers. S oh, can you not hear me, Noah? I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you. You're in Ulsa Mixer. Oh, okay. And I have a bunch of, I have like S slash PDIF and then SPDIF, one, two, three, four, five. I assume these are different volume controls. How would I know which one, like w what does SPDIF mean, and how do I know which one would be for my index HMD? Well, eight, eight, SPDIF is a digital output signal. It's essentially what you would use for if you had like, if you've seen the little red glowing dot on the side of, uh, of certain computers, it's a, it's, a, it's a fiber cable and it plugs in and sends audio digitally through fiber. Um, that's typically what SPDIF is, or actually, mm, 
I might be wrong on that. It might be actually the coaxial. Maybe they're both SPDF. I don't know. It's a digital form of communication for audio. I don't think that's your headset. I think your headset is, well, your headset would be a digital communication thing though, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be an analog audio device. Try it. Try that. that. Give that, give that a shot. If you, and you said you see multiple of them on there. That is correct. I got five total or six, actually. One is number zero. I'd try though. I'd start there. I'd start. I'd, I'd start. Are all the volumes turned up or any of them muted? Um, I just see zeros across the board. Um, okay. How would I tell if one is muted? So what? What? So you probably as the volumes probably probably turned down. If you look and un- unfortunately this is the kind of thing that I, I you know it's just gonna be very difficult to uh, to troubleshoot over a over a two minute radio call. But I tell you what I'll do. I'll put you back on hold, and I will let Sarah pick up and take down your contact information. And if you, uh, what I would suggest you do is look through that and and. Try to see which one of those, uh, try and turn all of those volumes up and see that they're unmuted. There's a legend down at the bottom that will tell you which one is which. And try and get all of the, all of the volume stuff uh, unmuted and turned up. If that doesn't work, uh, what I will do is uh, I'll have Sarah take down your contact information and I'll shoot you an email. If you run into any problems, I'll give you my direct email address and either I will try and troubleshoot it with you or we can walk through it together maybe sometime during the week. And uh, and if I run out of options, I've got some really smart friends and I will po- poke them and see if uh, if they can uh, can step in and help you. And I appreciate your call. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at Ask Noah Show. Dot com. AT Commander in the chat room suggests maybe switching sound cards. Now, that is an option, right? You could, if you wanted to, uh, use a, a, an external audio card. I'm guessing the reason that you're doing it the way that you're doing it, though, is because that headset probably is taking both a video and audio feed through that display cable. And so to have an external audio card, essentially the process would look something like this. You would export your audio through your, excuse me, your video through DisplayPort, HDMI, whatever. And then you would have to use an external combiner to bring the audio from a separate audio card back in to that single stream so that the headset is feeding off of an HDMI cable or a display cable is getting that audio signal as well as the video signal. And I've done that when we've, when we've done streaming before, right? When we do streaming from live events, that's what we do. We take a mixer and bring all the audio into a mixer and we take the cameras and bring all the audio in through the cameras and then we combine them together with a device and bring that entire single feed that contains both the audio from the mixer and the video from the hdmi cable and we plug that all into a single streaming capture at commander also says that also mixer headset will probably show as sound card one so check out spdif zero or one and see uh, see if you unmute those and turn those up and if it does work if you please give us a call back or if you could uh, just shoot us an email uh, we'd love to hear because I, I'd love to know if that actually works. So going back to this Facebook story, the, Facebook has been building a business around monetization of user data. And Facebook, which also owns WhatsApp, um, has now 1.6 billion monthly users. So back in 2016, WhatsApp completed the deployment of this end-to-end encryption. Again, simply basically copying what the Signal protocol was doing. And now... This universal popular messaging app, which, by the way, people weren't using because of privacy. They were just using it essentially because it was an easy way to get on voice over IP. And this is something that I've seen in the industry. I have dealt with clients that have said, I have to have WhatsApp. And I ask why. And they say, that's how I keep in contact with my business when I'm traveling overseas in India or China or Japan. And that was a that was a first clue to me 
because we offer VoIP services, right? We offer VoIP services, and I would love to sell VoIP services to some of these people. And so I have to start asking questions like, well, why is it that you want to use WhatsApp, and why is it that you don't want to use our, uh, our system? And, of course, the reason for that is because WhatsApp is free and WhatsApp is easy. And so people choose to use WhatsApp because it's available to them. So when Facebook starts to roll out privacy features on WhatsApp, it instantly starts to have a bigger draw because now people, not only do they have the convenience of using an IP-based messaging system, IP-based telephony system, now they have a, a, an increased level of privacy. And it's something that I think most people want if you ask them. If you run into somebody on the street and you stop them and said, hey, do you care about privacy? The answer is going to be yes. Do you want people listening in on your conversation? The answer is going to be no. And then you ask them, do you have an Alexa? Yeah. Do you use it? Yeah. Have you heard about all the problems with the privacy violations? Yeah. Why do you still have it? It's easy. And I like it. And it's novel. And, 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 and. There's no shortage of excuses. So what we, the lesson that we as technologists need to take away from this is not that we need to do a better job of telling people that their privacy is at stake. They know that. In a post-Snowden world, they know that people are violating their privacy. That isn't the problem. It's not enough. So where we need to go is one step further, and we need to get to a place in which we can tell people, your privacy is being violated. Here's an alternative. It does the same thing except it doesn't violate your privacy. It's just as easy to use. It's just as simple to set up. There's no techno babble that you have to understand. You don't have to type magical incantations into the keyboard. You don't have to move magical files, which you don't understand around. All of your conversations are going to be synced from one device to the other, as you would expect they are. It's just being done in a secure manner. If we can get to that place, then we can start to get people to care about their privacy because it's possible for them to live their daily lives and not violate their privacy. At the end of the day, people do care about privacy, but you know what they value more? Having dinner with their kids, having dinner with their family, going out on a family vacation. You know what gets in the way of that? When they can't plan their family vacation because this encrypted device didn't move the private key over to this other encrypted device, and so now they can't talk to their husband. So they just dump it all together and say, I'm going back to Facebook, man. I'll go back to WhatsApp. I'll go back to Telegram. I'll go back to whatever. I'll go back to anything that is simple for me to use. And that's the lesson we need to take away from this. Now, I'll explain in just a moment as to why the Signal protocol has become so prolific, why it's so popular, and why it maintains privacy, it maintains security, and yet doesn't cause extra angst for users who want to be able to leverage it. George calls us from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Excellent. How are you? Hanging in there, hanging in there, enjoying the night. Yeah, me too. It's a good night, and it, it's great because oh. we're well here in North Dakota. We're about to get dumped on with snow, so this is like my this is like my calm before the storm, quite literally. Oh, then I, yeah, no, I uh, I've learned early that in New York, never you should complain about the snow because <laughs> you guys get it way worse. That's right. Yeah, come for dinner in my house in the middle of December. I'll show you what's up. How can I help tonight? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, I've got two questions, if time allows. Uh, first one should be pretty easy. Um, I want to run a virtual machine of Windows to try to run the ATEM software. That's the video switcher control software that Blackmagic makes. Mm -hmm. I tried installing it in Wine. It did not go well. So I was wondering, um, like, what's the best way to do to throw that on, like, a, a virtual machine? 
Well, okay, let's start with here. Are you sure that Atom isn't on Linux? Um, I was looking. I could not find unless they made changes in the last few months. Like okay. I, I, usually when I typed it in Google, it all came up with, uh, oh, it should run online, and then I ran it in Wine. And it yeah, I just, I just uh, I did some quick on-air Googling here, and I'm coming across the same solution. Okay, so here's the, uh, here's the thing. Uh, so first of all, I would keep an eye on that because Blackmagic has been one of the companies, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put them in the gold dedicated to Linux category. I would certainly put them in the silver interested in Linux category. It would not surprise me in the least if in the next few years, the Atom video switcher comes out for Linux. So here's what I would do. You, you do want to run it in a VM, not in one. And the reason that you want to run it in a VM is because a VM will give you a actual Windows environment to run this in. And virtual machines have gotten to the point now where we can run them uh, with very if with very little overhead to the point that they function almost as if they're running on bare metal. And every Linux conference I've gone to for the last five years, they demonstrate that somebody is giving a presentation on KVM. And the part of the presentation on KVM is they put up the statistics and show how many like microseconds or milliseconds uh, you give up by running it in a VM, and it's almost next to nothing. And then everybody claps and everybody's all excited. So. How do you, what's the best way to go about setting up a VM for running this Atom video switcher? Well, there's a couple ways to do it. The best way to do it, if you want the best performance and no compromises, would be to set it up with something like KVM, something running, something like libvirt-d, and using the PCI pass-through function to get all of the video hardware to pass directly through the VM. So that would be things like the video card, that would be things like uh, any interface devices that are bringing the video in, and, and so on and so forth. So that's that's ideal option one. The problem with ideal option one is PCI pass-through is far from trivial. It requires a very specific set of hardware. It requires a very specific set of operating system circumstances. And if you can meet all of those boxes, then it works flawlessly. If you don't meet all of those boxes, it's just an exercise in frustration. It's no real solution to you at all. So the second option, if that doesn't work is to use something like VirtualBox with the USB pass-through. Now, that's not a true PCI pass-through. It's essentially using a kernel driver to, to, to pass the USB device or the PCI device, whichever it is, through the, through the kernel and into the, the software. Um, and so that's a second way that you can do it. Now, I have done it with real-time audio devices. I've never done it with real-time video devices. What I can tell you is that the real-time audio devices work flawlessly. And so my hope <laughs> for you is that the uh, real-time video will work flawlessly. It also stands to reason that the... Uh, the solution that is being suggested in the Blackmagic forums is to run it inside of a VM. And these people who are are just getting into it probably are not the kind of people that are going to be setting up PCI pass-through to begin with, because again, it takes a pretty dedicated nerd. And so what I would suggest to you is, is start with VirtualBox and see if that works. If you want to take an extra step, go ahead and try something with libvirt-d. Um, again, be prepared for a little extra setup. But if if nothing else, I would I would just go with something like VirtualBox, set up a Windows 10 machine, pass it through, install your software, and see if that works. Okay, I'll definitely give that a shot. And uh, i got a second question if you've got the time. You bet. All right. Um, I also want to dabble in FreeNAS, and I've been uh, listening to what you guys have been talking about it, uh, you, DOSGeek. And um, I kind of don't feel like like custom building it is there like a system you recommend just to pick up just to throw free nas on and, and have it work spectacularly so to answer your question directly the answer is yes and the entry-level system would be the free nas mini does that answer your question as you asked it 
Um, yeah, no, I have no, uh, yeah. Okay. Because so, it's like either that, I don't think I needed a huge, like, um, server or anything. Right. And that the FreeNAS Mini is the cheapest, uh, the cheapest device that you can buy that is of quality and made by the very people that make FreeNAS. So that answers your question, yes? Yes, it does. Okay. So now that we've done that, let me go on a tangent that you didn't ask for. Ordinarily, I would be in the exact same boat with you. I hate building stuff when I need it, right? It's fun to build stuff as a hobby. I hate doing it for work. I hate the idea. Exactly. It's one of the reasons that we don't use PFSense, to be honest with you, is that um, there, it's, NetGate is the only company that manufactures devices, and their entry-level device is $1,000. And I'm, there's no way in you know, on this planet that I can go to a small mom-and-pop shop that has four computers and tell them that they need to spend $1,000, the amount that they spent on the owner's laptop just for a router so that they can get internet when they can go to Best Buy and pay 49 bucks and they were happy with that. It was working for them, right? It's just, it's not even close to possible. Um, and so that is one of the primary reasons that keep us out of there. And I am not going to spend my time building router appliances so that they can die so that I can go out and create work for myself and fix them. No, it's not happening. So I'll just use Microtech and it does all this, most of the same stuff that PFSense does. And they're 99 bucks for the rack unit or $39 for the, uh, for the little jobby and it works great. So I'm with, I completely understand where you're coming from. That said, building FreeNAS, and I use that term lightly, is literally a function of plugging a flash drive in, plugging the drives in, and waiting. And about, I mean, you should be able to do it in, with no experience, never touching FreeNAS before. However fast you can plug the drives in, it should take you about 15 minutes from start to finish to run the FreeNAS installer. You plug the drive in, you boot off of it. You it'll it, it doesn't really even ask you questions. You just click, continue to click next and the system will boot up by default. It will grab an IP address from uh, DHCP, just like if you bought an appliance at Best Buy and plugged it into your network would you log into that web UI. And from there, you would set it up just like the FreeNAS Mini. The cost savings for spending that 15 minutes is you can buy a super micro uh, box off of eBay for ninety nine dollars. The FreeNAS Mini starts at a thousand. So, uh, yes, there is a device that you can buy that will meet all of your requirements, and it is a phenomenal box. And we used one back at the studio for years and years and years, and it worked flawlessly. And it comes with the blessing of IX systems. There's nothing wrong with that box. I'd highly recommend it to anybody that has a thousand bucks to drop on a pre-made box. That said, what you have to understand is the only thing, and I do mean the only thing that makes that box pre-made is. Is uh, is uh, IX Systems tested motherboards with their software and made sure that everything works. And what I can tell you is that the same motherboards that they sell with their higher end servers are the exact same motherboards that are being sold on eBay from places like Mr. Rackables. And so if you were to go to Mr. Rackables and buy a $99 server and throw two hard drives in it, one as a boot drive and one as a NAS drive and plug the flash drive in, you're ahead of the game as far as cost by a factor of 10 and you have arguably a better box. So I understand what you're saying. If you want to go the route, FreeNAS Mini is the answer to your question. I wouldn't do that, though. I would build a box, even though I hate building boxes. Oh, no, I, uh, I guess I left out the part that I'm also married, so that, uh, that 
cheaper option sounds yeah. a whole lot better. Yeah, and you'll you'll get more life out of it too, man. Because you know if you you can so with the free NAS Mini, you're stuck with four drives. You're stuck with the micro ITX board. And frankly, and I don't mean to rag on IX systems, but I think that box is fairly underpowered for what it is and for what they charge for it. So I'm not real impressed with the specifications. When I can go on eBay and buy a Xeon for 200 bucks, and then I can go put four drives in it, and now I'm spending money where it really matters. Instead of spending money on a, a motherboard which is tested, and frankly, I've yet to run into a motherboard that doesn't work with FreeNAS. I'm instead of spending money on the on the quote unquote tested and certified motherboard, which by the way, part of what you're paying for that is the VM license and all that stuff that comes with the VM certification. Uh, it, what you're what you actually need is a storage server, and what makes a good storage server is really good drives and lots of them and big ones. And so if I can take that $900 and put it into four terabyte Western Digital Reds or 10 terabyte Western Digital Reds, I'm way far ahead of the game. Um, and like I said, as a person who doesn't like building boxes, I'll spend the extra 15 minutes to, to save myself to, uh, that money. Does that answer your question? Totally. Thank you very much. Awesome. I appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Lou, Connecticut. You're on Ask Noah. Hey, Noah. Can you hear me? I can. How are we doing? Hey, pretty good. Um, I kind of have a weird, I don't want to say off-topic question, but it's a little different than, uh, than some, maybe some of, your, some of the other questions you got tonight. Sure. Um, so I don't know if you remember me from, uh, I probably called a few months ago asking you, Android. you know, whether, whether I should support a company, company that, um, that will contribute to Core Boot, and should I buy only completely free software, you know, or should I buy a Dell? I don't know if you remember that question from a while ago. Okay, I don't. Last, last time I remember talking to you, we talked about syncing on Android and not using Google. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but as somebody that, that really cares about uh, freedom, uh, that's the, probably the main reason I care. I, I use Linux because it's it's free as in freedom, not just free because it costs nothing. I don't really care about that part. You know, if it, yep. it cost me a thousand dollars donation that I that I would love to give to, to developers that that make free and open software, I would do that. Sure. Um, so my question more is like. So, so you guys have talked about maybe in the future there, there could be a time where Linux is the, the main desktop OS where it re completely replaces Windows because you, you see Windows is going nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I do think that's a possibility. But also kind of in the back of my mind, I think, okay, even if that did happen, right, when uh, Linux has a 90% market share on the desktop, what would Linux even end up looking like then? Because part of me, like the kind of downer part of me thinks that what's going to happen is it won't really be Linux anymore. Like Microsoft and Google and all these other companies will have such an effect on Linux and the Linux kernel that it, maybe it won't even be free anymore. And then you know, I also read about things online that, you know, even right now there is some DRM built into the Linux kernel, things like the, um, or the HDCP, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. so, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm really interested in, in threats, I guess, to, to the freedom of Linux. And, and, I, and I guess, like, the most nightmarish scenario I can think of is, not nightmarish, but, um, but what if Linux didn't exist? If we only had to choose between, okay, you, you can either use a Windows computer or a Mac, and that's it. And there's mm -hmm. no open source anything. I mean, I think if we were actually living that reality, when the government comes in and says, okay, we're, we're going to outlaw encryption and things like that, well, maybe if there's no open source alternative, maybe they'd be able, be, be able to, to pull off something like that. Yeah, I, you know, I think I you're... Know, I mean... I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. I, I think that 
when you start looking at what mainstream wants out of quote unquote Linux, they don't care about any of the ideology that's behind it, right? That's something that people like you and I care about. What they care about is can I get my work done? And so you're right. If tomorrow, let's say let's take Ubuntu as our as our staple. Ubuntu is a fairly privacy respecting distribution. I've met the people that work at Canonical. They very much care about user privacy, user security, those kinds of things. So let's go ahead and, and use that as kind of a as kind of a groundwork uh let's call it ground zero and building from that if their competition was let's say microsoft linux and microsoft comes out and designs a linux distro and the microsoft linux distro has cortana and has all sorts of privacy invasive features but it also supports microsoft office and it also supports execution of pl code because microsoft would have the capability of doing that and they they wrap in all of these convenient features around you're 100 percent right Overnight, that would become the world's most popular distro, and overnight, people would stop caring about Ubuntu. And where we would wind up as Linux users is Linux, the very thing that that we have been working for and, and promoting and talking about and working hard on, all of that hard work over 20-some-plus years would get taken, rolled into this new product that doesn't carry any of the things that we actually care about, and then it would get shifted up to the masses. And the truth is, we have watched that process unfold time and time and time again. I was just talking to a friend the other day about the fact that I remember back in the 90s where I was trying to digitize all of my music and all of my friends and all everybody I knew was listening to music in their cars on tape players. And I remember thinking to myself, how awesome would it be if you look at the if you look at the if you look at the the, the bit rate that is encoded onto an audio cassette and then you look at the bit rate that's encoded onto a digital audio CD? how much greater the audio quality is on a CD. The problem, of course, with CDs are that they scratch, and at the time, they skipped when you tried to play them in a car. It was early on when they first put CDs players into cars. And so I was telling myself, I know that it's possible to digitally encode information and store them on uh, you know, media that could be solid state. Why is it we don't have solid state media players? And of course, later on, you know, uh, iPods came out first with the spinning disc, but eventually turned into solid state devices. And now um, audio players, as we relate them to our phones, exist all over the place. And what has happened? Do we have high end, really high end audio uh, devices that ship uncompressed waves right from the studio to our home no we have spotify and it and it and it drills down to 128 kilobits per second you know it sounds like they're talking through a through a coke can and and i'm listening to that as my quote-unquote music and it's a service i don't have a music collection and now studios aren't even releasing waves they release just the the encoded 256 mp3 and they put it up on amazon or itunes and people download it and everybody looks at that and goes oh look at all the success we have right like we have taken this technologically awesome thing and dumbed it down for the dumbest people on society because it's more convenient that way. And you're absolutely right. Does Is Linux going to go down that path? Probably. Look at navigation. We used to have Garmin, really high-end uh, research from Germany that went into aeroplanes, and we took that research and put it into small portable navigation units. And who uses it now? Almost nobody. I still use it, but most people just use the navigation, the crappy, inaccurate navigation with the crappy, inaccurate voice on your phone. Why? Because it's more convenient. And so I, I, you're right. I've watched that process unfold time and time and time again. And it's exceptionally frustrating as somebody who is passionate about technology. And I really hope it doesn't happen to Linux. Unfortunately, I do believe that we're going to arrive at a point where we have to choose. Do we want, quote unquote, mainstream Linux that comes with some privacy, uh, you know, uh, violations and so on and so forth? Or do we want to just exist as this niche operating system that's never going to have more than 5% of the market share? And I don't really know what the answer to that question is, but what I will tell you is 
projects like Signal do give me a lot of hope because projects like Signal found a, a way to navigate those tricky waters in which they provide an open source project that's secure by default and has all of the modern conveniences and sync features that anybody in the normal world would expect. And so when you can find that magical solution, what happens? Facebook Messenger implements it. Every other messaging protocol out there is using or trying to move to the Signal protocol because it's secure, people trust it, people know it, um, and it doesn't compromise convenience. See, I see. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think it's just, it's so, it's so, so fascinating to, to think about what could happen to Linux in the future. And, and you know, I, I love your show, and I always listen to Destination Linux. And, uh, and I would, you know, I, I'm obviously not telling you guys what to talk about, but I mean, I, I love just, even, even just now, just hearing you speculate on like, what would happen if Ubuntu decided to, you know, partner with Windows. And, and again, that's, that's something that, that I think maybe, maybe people should be, be a little bit more worried about than they are. Yeah, I completely, that's a fantastic you know, point. Who, yeah. Yeah, it really yeah. is. And, 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 and again, as somebody who, like, even if it came down to, okay, we have to make this choice between mainstream Linux and, and you know, you're giving up everything you care about and there's no more privacy and it has Cortana built in, mm-hmm. or, you know, would you rather stay insignificant? It's like, I, I would at least somehow have that, have, have that option available. But I even remember, you know, the, a few months ago, maybe, maybe it was a year ago at this point, when they, uh, the code of conduct uh, got put into place and everybody was saying, oh, we're going to move to, you know, free BSD. And it's like, all right, well, you know, I, I, I don't really know how this is going to affect one thing or the other. But but what if you know Linux just completely mm-hmm. went under and 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 when it wasn't there anymore, it's like well what what else is there? What what alternatives are there for open source right and and freedom and uh and then that that thing kind of scares me. So I yeah, I mean it, I, it's it's really cool to hear about and and hearing you guys talk about it is is, is great. So. I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate your call more than you know. I mean, that, that, that you bring up some really excellent points. You gave me a lot to think about. I will tell you this, uh, as as I as I roll out with you, and I'm I'm gonna we're gonna move on to a couple other things. But I thank you for the call. Um, the the truth is that a lot of the projects that are maintained on Linux are maintained because they are pa- maintained by passionate people. And so even if tomorrow Microsoft teamed up with Canonical because Canonical went public and they bought a bunch out and integrated a bunch of stuff, right? That's not going to affect. Uh, the Kubuntu team per se. They could go ahead and fork and make their own distro. It's not going to affect Ubuntu Mate per se. They could fork and do their own. All of these distros, I mean, that's the whole nature of open source. When something takes a direction we don't like, everybody follows the fork. Now, to your point, there may come a point where we have two forks and one is the free and open source version that doesn't do anything, or at least not much, and the other has 90% market adoption, but it's filled with a bunch of privacy violations. That may occur, but in that event, I would like to think that the people that are working on open source would go, hey, look at all of this good stuff that exists inside of this thing and just doesn't have the privacy stuff. I wonder if we could accomplish the same things that whatever company wants to accomplish without violating privacy, right? Maybe we just give a little button that people can opt in or opt out or something like that. I think there's a couple of ways that we can deal with that. I don't think Linux can ever go away, and that is by the very nature of open source, right? Uh, and we've seen that happen a couple of times, too. A project gets too big for its britches, it starts to go a direction that the developer never intended it to, and all of a sudden there's a fork, and the it continues. And we watched that happen with, like, uh, I forget the, the, the open source version of Airtime, but it's happened a number of different times throughout open source's history. So there's a pretty established track record of, the, of that occurring. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, but it, it's definitely something interesting to watch. And I agree with you that if it ever happens, um, 
mainstream Linux probably won't look like anything like we would think it would look like, and that's kind of disappointing. And I think the first evidence of that is Nunix points out in the chat room. He says, you talk about these things like they're not happening already, and they are happening already, and we can see that in the case of things like the Google Chromebook is based on Gentoo. How many people walked into Best Buy, though, and looked at a Chromebook and went, oh, look, Gentoo, right? No, 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 no. Only a name is a Gentoo. Everything else is just a Google operating system that they ripped off from Gentoo. Signal does this well, though. Signal does this well because they were able to navigate these tricky waters. And the, the challenge that Signal faced was this. People want to be able to communicate with their loved ones from a multitude of different devices to include the web, but they also want privacy if it doesn't conflict with their convenience. And so the way that Signal accomplishes this is they generate a set of long-term identity key pairs, a medium-term signed key pairs, and then what the key does is it, uh, it typically in a in a in an encryption scenario what one key does the other one undoes and so you would typically encrypt all of your data with your public key and you would or excuse me encrypt your data with your uh yeah you would encrypt your data with the person you want to send it to's public key send it to them and then they would decrypt it with their private key but the truth is encryption can be either way you could encrypt with either key and decrypt with either key what one key does the other undoes um the way that Signal handles this is when a new device is registered. So I, I, I open Signal on my phone and I generate a set of keys. And now I have a set of keys. When I, gener when I install Signal on my laptop, a second set of keys is generated. And every user has their keys or the public keys stored in what's known as a key bundle. And that is able to be synced to any other person's device. So when you want to communicate from me, you download my key bundle and that gives you my public key, which you can use to encrypt messages and send to me, which only I can read because only I have my private key. The trick becomes, how do I get the private key of my cell phone over to the private key of my laptop? And the way that it does this is the old device downloads the public key for the new device. So that is to say, my phone would download the public key for my laptop. Then it would use the public key from my laptop to encrypt the private key of my cell phone and send that key encrypted to my new device, which is my laptop. My laptop, now having the private key that it generated, can decrypt the package which contains the private key for my cell phone, and now it can register itself as an authenticated device to receive encrypted messages. And to the user, it's completely transparent. It just seems like you've scanned a QR code, and all of a sudden, now this new device has access to all your messages. What's happening behind the scenes, though, is cryptographically secure. And so it does, it, it maintains cryptographic uh, integrity without causing any undue stress to the user. The user, it's completely transparent. They have no idea what's happening. Of course, if you look into it, you do. But uh, there's nothing the user has to worry about or maintain or manage. And because of that, and because of the ingenious nature of that protocol, it's being adopted a number of different places. From the article, because users hold the keys, WhatsApp has no way to access the content to break the encryption, even if they want to. Accessing content requires a hack applied to the endpoint, as it has been in certain nationwide attacks, where smart devices are infected with malware that attacks the messaging apps. From a platform perspective, though, sitting in WhatsApp HQ, the content cannot be accessed. So that is to say, the way that WhatsApp or the Signal protocol or anything else that is modeling it 
the way that that works is the people who run the service are not able to access the message. It does not, however, guarantee any security for the endpoint in which you've installed the application. So if my phone itself is compromised, if let's say I unlock my phone with my pin and I leave it setting out of my desk and let's say my screen timeout is 10 minutes and somebody walks over and picks my phone up that's signed into uh, Signal or WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger secret chats, obviously there is nothing that they're going to be able to do to stop that. If you were to able to install a piece of malware that could monitor the screen of your cell phone, it doesn't matter how secure the protocol is, it's being attacked outside of that and there's nothing that they can do. And this is a case in which I don't trust Android or iOS. In the case of iOS, we have no way of knowing if it's secure because we can't see the source code. And th there's no way to audit the source code because it's not open. In the case of Android, some of the source code is open. And the, what we know from the source code being open is that there are multiple exploits and many devices, even when those exploits are patched, those patches are not applied to many devices because the updates aren't accurately and, and frequently applied. And there have been multiple different attempts and models to try to rectify this but we haven't really got anywhere. So if WhatsApp can't access the content, that means that law enforcement and government agencies cannot access the content. And if they want to access the content, then they must compromise the endpoint. They have to compromise a smartphone. They have to compromise a computer. And so there is no amount of level of pressure that they can apply legally or otherwise to the platform to uh, no court orders, no warrants, nothing is going to allow them to access that data. And so what it does is it insulates companies like Facebook from ever being put in the middle of, hey, should we give the data up or should we not give the data up? And frankly, this is something Apple would do well to pay attention to because if they actually in in installed a system and implemented a system in which updates couldn't be applied unless the user entered their encryption key or PIN or whatever it is we're using to unlock the private key, and to apply the updates, if Apple would implement something like that, that would offer a more secure and robust way for them to say, hey, listen, we would love to help you out and push a firmware update to this device. It's just not technically possible. It's technically impossible. Now, what's funny about this, and this is about what you might expect, politicians and security officials have uh, been some of the first people to come out and say, well, I'm going to use Signal because this is great and I want to go off the dark web and I want to be able to talk and I don't like the fact that all of these bad things that I say and all of these bad things that I do can be can be detected. But as soon as this comes up for debate in the public eye, what's their answer? Well, criminals and terrorists and pedophiles are going to be able to send messages and uh, we are the government need to be able to snoop on those. So... I don't know. This doesn't seem like it's a really great idea. This is kind of a nightmare. And you know what? It is a nightmare and it should be a nightmare. I'm glad that it's a nightmare to violate people's privacy. The Fourth Amendment, and I want to be clear about this, is not a shroud for illegal activity. I don't believe that the Fourth Amendment exists to protect people to do illegal things. That said, it should be a royal pain in the tuchus for somebody to go about the process of compelling a organization or compelling a user to reveal uh, their data. The fact is we exist in a world where for centuries, if law enforcement had a warrant, they could break into your safe at home. And so you could put, you could buy the world's best safe. And at the end of the day, if you have enough time and you have access to enough information, the manufacturer actually will give you what's called a drill sheet. And it's basically like a giant sticker that goes on the outside of the safe and tells you exactly where the bolts are. Uh, in the safe and so you can drill it open 
And so with enough time and effort, you can drill that safe open or you can, you know, use a torch and break into it. But the point is that law enforcement, given enough time and effort and the proper warrants, are able to break into that safe. What law enforcement doesn't like about this, what government doesn't like about this, and what people who are against this don't like about this is it changes that norm. It changes the norm so that privacy becomes a default. And the only way that you can violate privacy is with the consent of the individual which you want to violate their privacy. And every once in a while, they get it right. Every once in a while, they do something that I'm like, hey, that was uh, that was legit. And the example that comes to mind is Ross Albrecht. If you're not familiar with Ross Albrecht, he was the guy that started the Silk Road. And the way that the government went about getting into his encrypted data was they waited for him to set up at a public library and enter his encryption password and open his laptop. Then they caused a distraction and rip the laptop out from under him. Now, I want to be clear. The vast majority of the stuff that happened to Ross Albrecht is complete and total crap. And the people that, the fact that the people that that uh, chased after him are in jail as well should tell you a lot about the, the ethical and legal violations that occurred to try to get this guy uh, prosecuted. But, and I'm not going to defend that at all. That said, Going into a library and taking his laptop physically from him after he's entered the encryption password is exactly the kind of effort and manpower that should be required to violate somebody's privacy. If you know that they're not going to give you the key to that private data and the only way to unlock the data is for the user to enter the private key, that's what we want out of encryption. That's what we want out of security. That's what should become the de facto standard. That's what should become default. And what you're finding is that all of these user data abuses and privacy scandals and people struggling to recover the, the confidence of the users after things like this Cambridge Analytica stuff, all these companies have to change their direction. And Facebook is one of the companies that is holding strong to this idea that privacy should come first. Now, I don't believe it's because Facebook actually cares about user privacy. I think it's because Facebook really cares about money and they know that the answer to money is to get the support of users and right now they're they're just lambasted in the public eye for uh, for for some of these privacy violations we'll have more information for you in the show notes you can check those out at podcast.asanoashow.com this is a fascinating subject and of course we'll continue to cover it but i want to talk to you guys about something else a new project that i'm working on it's called the school of hard knocks this is a life advice podcast every month we dig in very deep to a story or a series of stories and we try to uncover and unpack something together as we venture down that rabbit hole and so this week or this month rather episode one focuses on alcoholism and addiction and alcoholism and addiction affects way more people than you ever might imagine and we had a chance to record episode one we had four really brave people that were willing to come on the show and share their stories with us i want to play a short clip of uh, of one of the stories i want to say i don't like people because i do and that that too is cliche i think people if if most people are honest with themselves dealing with people day to day is kind of a necessity of being on planet earth is it something that you seek out to do when you leave your house in the morning? Are you looking to deal with 25 people and certainly 25 people that you're in various stages of like with? Probably not. You open your phone in the morning. There's your social media. You, you And, you know, you're looking at Jimmy the knucklehead who's left 12 things there that you scroll by. And, and so socially it kind of took the edge off of all of that. Right. So I could I could t I could tolerate much more than what I would normally tolerate. I've always been an opinionated guy. 
I'm fairly stubborn, and I'm a guy that just in social situations, I'm not. My mindset isn't always right. Booze for me got me to the right mindset. I thought I was funnier, and everybody does maybe. I thought that I was easy, easier going. I thought that um, I could tolerate BS a lot better. And it became something that I had to have in social situations, not something that I could, I, I wanted, I always wanted more than two. That was the other thing. If I, after the third beer, it, what are we doing? I'm not going to have just three. Let's, uh, let's drink them all. And I tried. If you've ever seen uh, Top Gear, if people will tell you, anybody that watches Top Gear will tell you that show is not about cars. It is a show that is a comedy show that happens to revolve around some cars and have some, from time to time some cars involved, right? But it's a great show to watch just if you are interested in being entertained. I would tell you the same thing about the School of Hard Knocks podcast. You don't have to have an alcohol addiction. You don't even have to care about addiction uh, and alcoholism to get enjoyment out of it. They are four very great, compelling stories, and uh, and you can hear them by going to schoolofhardknocks.show. That's schoolof.hardknocks.com schoolofhardknocks.show or you can subscribe in the Google Play, iTunes, anywhere you can find good podcasts. We have it available. Hey, the Ask Noah show continues next week. If you'd like more information, obviously we don't get to all of the articles and references that we talk about on the show, but you can get them yourself at podcast.asknoahshow.com. There's articles and references all over the place. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Simon, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. Huge thanks to Vox Telesis. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. More information, asknoahshow.com.